0: Well, again, I'll encourage you to open your Bible. I know the passage is on the handout. It's going to be on the screen, but we're going to look at several passages in the Scriptures tonight. It's good practice for you to flip around in your Bible and remind yourself where some of these books are and look up these passages and read them out of your own copy of God's Word. So look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, if you have a Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 to verse 10. Passage says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. For While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. If you've been here the last couple of weeks, you know that the particular phrase we're focusing on in this Wednesday night series is the phrase right in the end of verse 7 where Paul tells Timothy to train yourself for godliness. This is basically 12 weeks of sermons on that particular phrase. What does it mean to train yourself for godliness? Uh, Why should we do that and how do we do that? The two dangers that we want to avoid all the way through this study of training for godliness are the dangers of legalism and laziness. And both of these things are real dangers, I think, for all of us. There is something inside of so many of us that's like an inner Pharisee that says you have to be good for God to love you. You have to improve before you can come to God. You've got to get your life cleaned up before God will want to have anything to do with you. That's legalism. That's trying to earn your way with God, and that's not at all what we're talking about when we think about training for godliness. Uh, As Americans, when it comes to spirituality, another great danger is laziness. That we just say, well, God is loving, God is kind, He's gracious, He's forgiving, He's merciful, that's what He's there to do. We don't really need to change anything in our lives. God's just going to accept us the way that we are. You hear these sorts of ideas all the time. And the end result of that is that we would be spiritually lazy. And in the middle, there's an approach that says, no... We understand that God's grace comes to us and God saves us by His grace through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ, before and apart from us cleaning ourselves up. We're not saved by our good works in any way, shape, or form. And at the same time, God's grace that saves us is not content to leave us as we are or as we were. But God wants to be at work in our life to grow us and to change us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. If you want to talk about this in doctrinal terms, you would say all of those who are justified and adopted and reconciled will also begin the process of sanctification. They will grow in godliness. And we're thinking in this series about how we train ourselves for godliness. If we're going to train for godliness... We have to have some idea of what godliness is. And so I've shared with you a couple of weeks ago uh, an alter definition or a counter definition, uh, a definition from a man named Jerry Bridges in a book called Respectable Sins, where he defines ungodliness. And I think it's a very helpful way to think about this. We'll just take his definition and flip it on its head. So this is what Bridges says about ungodliness. Ungodliness may be defined as living one's everyday life with little or no thought of God or God's will or God's glory of one's dependence on God. You can see that someone can lead a respectable life and still be ungodly in the sense that God is essentially irrelevant in his or her life. And we've talked about this already. You can be a church-going person. You can be a Sunday morning, Sunday school, Wednesday night, ladies Bible study, men's institute kind of person. You can come to all of the things that we do and you can leave this place and you can live the rest of your life. People do this all the time with little or no thought of God or of his glory or of his will or of his word or of your dependence on him or any of those things. You can come here and check a religious box and you can live the rest of your life functioning essentially as if God didn't exist at all. And the flip of that definition is what we would define as godliness. Somebody who actually lives his or her life thinking about God, oriented towards God, concerned with what His will is. Seeking his glory in your life, meditating on his word, recognizing consistently and and throughout your life, not just in this room, but throughout your life, how dependent you are on him. And so we're training for godliness. We have a 12-week training regimen. We're three weeks in. We've talked about purity. Corey talked last week about friendship, and you can see what's ahead. Tonight, we're going to talk about prayer. What role does prayer play In training for godliness. It plays a really big role. But I want to start off by acknowledging some things to you. This is not to make you or me or any of us feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed. I just want to admit to you that I struggle with prayer. It's not an easy thing for me. I don't think it's an easy thing for most people. Many of the people I know who say they don't struggle with prayer, if you spend much time praying with them, I would say, no, I think you're struggling with prayer. I don't think you're exactly on the right track here. It's a difficult discipline to sort of master and implement into your life. And it's a perplexing thing uh, to think about. Let me just tell you some of the things that I think are funny when it comes to prayer. Uh, We're Baptists. You may not think of yourself as a Baptist. That's fine. But this is a Baptist church. Uh, We would be what church historians would call low church people. Okay? Blue collar people. Baptists. Don't be ashamed of that. That's what we are. Blue collar folks. There are high church folks. Anglicans. Some forms of Presbyterianism, Catholics, things are very formal, very ritualistic. And sometimes low church folks like us, this is spatially kind of odd, but low church folks like us look down our nose at high church people because they pray prayers out of books, like maybe the Book of Common Prayer uh, if you're not an Anglican, maybe you like the Valley of Vision, a collection of Puritan prayers. And we say, oh, you, you people, you don't know anything about prayer. All you do is read your prayers. How can that be real prayer? You just read it. It's wrote. It's out of a book. You don't mean it. You just end up saying the same things over and over. Uh, that would be so terrible to go to church and open the book and just pray the same things over and over and over again. It would lose its meaning. Now, this is why I think it's odd. If you spend much time praying with any one low church person, any one of you or any one of me, guess what? You pretty much pray the same things over and over and over again. And you may not be reading them out of a book, but we just sort of tend to say the same things over and over and over again. And we might laugh at the children who say the little recited prayer before the meal and think, oh, that's such a, oh, I don't pray like that. I'm more sophisticated than that. And yet, if we ask you to pray for the meal, it probably sounds like the prayer you prayed for the meal yesterday and the day before and the day before and the day before. So there's some irony in that. I think there's irony, at least in our culture, that many sporting events begin with prayer, and I I'm not opposed to that, but it's an interesting thing. Uh, we have a man in our church who's done some research and uh, some writing on this on an academic level, and it's interesting to talk with him about this. Uh, I still haven't quite made the connection between the Lord's Prayer and a football game, and yet many times football teams will meet in the locker room, and they'll say the Lord's Prayer, and I'm not entirely sure what the exact angle on that is. A lot of you know that there was Uh, a time, about a year, year and a half ago, where our son, Clayton, got interested in rodeo, mutton-busting. And he rode in these rodeos, and we posted these pictures, and he loved it. I don't know if you've ever been to a rodeo. I've been to more than I ever thought I would go to at this point in my life. They always begin with a prayer. And I'll just be honest with you, I have led some of those prayers because when people find out you're a pastor and you're there, they think, oh, someone qualified to do this. Wonderful. And they ask you to pray and you think, okay, well, I've heard what they say. I guess I should kind of pray the exact same thing because that's what they expect. And basically the prayer before a rodeo involves prayer for the livestock and prayer for the riders. And this is odd to me. Because I've never seen a bull get hurt in the rodeo. And we're praying that God would protect this 1,500-pound massive animal. I've seen a lot of cowboys get hurt. And you think, this is interesting. We're about to throw a man on top of a wild bull. And yet we're going to pray, God, would you please keep this man safe? Because we know odds are he's going to get thrown and he could get stomped. So that's an interesting thing if you spend time praying with certain people uh, one of the ironies that I think you'll notice if you really pay attention is that some people when they're praying they're actually just talking out loud about praying. They're not actually talking to God they're just telling God that they'd like to talk to Him. And sometimes if you listen to people pray and you really pay attention to what they're saying, even me or you, you say, are they, do they think they're telling God things He doesn't know? I mean, they're laying out scenarios, and God, this happened and this happened, and sometimes you think, I, I think God knows what's going on. And it's just interesting. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do that. It's just an interesting thing that we come to God, and sometimes we are essentially providing Him with status updates. Maybe we're providing him with advice. God, this is what's going on. I don't know if you've noticed. Maybe you should think about this course of action. This is what we want you to do. I know we're small. I know our brains are tiny and we're finite compared to you and your infinite wisdom and your goodness and your faithfulness and your promises, but we think that you should do this thing. That's an odd thing to think about, is it not? That we would come to God and counsel Him. So, prayer. That's what we're talking about tonight. Prayer as it relates to training for godliness. We're going to get to the how. But before we get to the how, we're going to talk about the why. Okay? The how is how do we actually train for godliness in the discipline of prayer. First, let's talk about the why, and that begins with the character of God. Some of the things I'm about to lay out to you, as I looked over my notes today, I thought these are very simple things. So I hope you're not disappointed in the simplicity of some of these truths, but they really are important for you to think about and wrestle with as you approach this practice of prayer. So number one, the Bible presents the creator God as a God who speaks. He's a speaking God and he speaks to his people. So I'd love for you to have your Bible and turn to the book of Genesis. We're not going to look all of these verses up in all of these points, but some of these we are going to look at. Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said... Let there be light, and there was light. He spoke, and light came into existence. And as the days of creation continue to unfold, he speaks, and things happen. He's a speaking God. So he speaks and he creates. Look at verse 26. God speaks to himself. The triune God speaks to himself in the midst of creation. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. So God is speaking to create. He's speaking to himself about creating people in his image. And then in verse 28, God blessed them, the male and the female, the man and the woman. And he said to them, be fruitful and multiply. He spoke to them, he didn't have to speak to them, but he spoke to create, he spoke to himself about creation, a Trinitarian conversation, and he speaks to the creatures that he created in his image. Flip over a few pages to Genesis 6, by the time you get to Genesis 6, everything has gone haywire in creation. Verse 5 says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great, in the earth and every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So you're about to prepare yourself for God to just wipe his hands with these people. But then you come down in Genesis 6 verse 13, and it says, God said to Noah. He talked to Noah. He shared his plan with Noah. He communicated with Noah. Flip a few pages later. We get past the flood. We deal with the Tower of Babel. Everything's gone haywire again. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram. What was Abram doing when the Lord said this to him? Well, he's just living his life, worshiping idols in Mesopotamia. Not thinking about the Lord at all. Not wanting the Lord to show up in his life. Not even knowing the Lord. And the Lord just appears to Abram and he speaks to him. In Exodus, God saves a people from slavery in Egypt, and he brings those people out through the Red Sea and through the wilderness into Mount Sinai. Why did he bring them there? So that he could speak to them. He had something to say to them. First, he saved them. First, he saved them. And then he speaks to them and he says, here's how I want you to live as my people. I've already saved you. Now that I've saved you, now that you belong to me, here's how I want you to live. And he lays out the Ten Commandments and he lays out his laws. Moses said to the younger generation, when the Exodus generation had died and the new generation was getting ready to come into the Promised Land, Moses said to them, Don't forget that the Lord spoke to you out of the midst of the fire and you lived. And no other people has heard the voice of God speaking like that and live to tell about it. God speaks to his people. This is what you have to remember when it comes to prayer. It's really important. It's really important. Anything and everything that we say to God. All of it. Is response to what he has said to us first. God speaks to his people first. And our response to him is prayer. God is the first speaker. Secondly, the Bible claims to be a book that contains the very words of God. So if you want to hear God's voice, you read the Bible. If you want to hear God's voice out loud, you read the Bible out loud. If you want to know what God says about a thing, you read the Bible. That's God's Word For his people. And there's two verses I want you to look at. We're dealing with Psalm 119 on Sunday mornings. So we'll cover that on Sundays. Look at 2 Timothy. Chapter 3. Verse 16. It says all scripture is breathed out by God. He breathes it out. Literally he spirits it out. He speaks it. It's from his mouth. All scripture is breathed out by God. That's why it's profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness. Flip over a few pages to the right. Look at what Peter says. Second Peter chapter 1. Verse 21. Back up to verse 20. Peter says, know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. So we're dealing with Scripture. No prophecy, he says, was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Men spoke. Men wrote these words down but they did it from God with God as the Holy Spirit was carrying them along so that the words that we have in the Scriptures are God's breathed out words. God has spoken to His people, not just in the past, but in the Bible. God speaks to His people. Thirdly, this one's the big one when you really stop and think about it. The Bible presents the one true God as a God who listens to His people. He speaks. He speaks in the scriptures. And what God says about himself in the scriptures is that he is a God who listens to his people. Don't take this for granted. Do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? You remember the prophets of Baal go first in this big showdown in the calling down fire on the sacrifice and all that business. And you remember, they're cutting themselves and they're screaming and they're dancing and they're going crazy. And twice, the author of Kings inserts a comment to say, there was no voice because no one paid attention. They're just speaking out into the air. No one listening. When you talk to the God of Scripture, the one true God, the triune God, when you pray to him, he hears you. And I know that sounds so basic, but some of you don't believe that. Some of you think he's too busy, he's running the universe. Who am I? But he hears you. He actually hears you. He hears his people when they pray. Some of you think, nope, my prayers are bouncing right off the ceiling and they're coming right back down to me. Not working. No, he hears you. He hears you. I don't want to look these up. Let me just mention these. Genesis 18. God goes and tells Abraham that he's going to destroy Sodom. And Lot's in Sodom. And God stands there with Abraham and listens to him ask questions about 50, 40, 35, 20, how many? He listens to all of that business. Now there comes a point where God was done and it says God leaves. God was done talking to Abraham and he left. But he stood there and he listened to Abraham in his questions. What about Exodus 3? Have you ever just stopped to consider the fact that the God of the universe appeared to Moses in this burning bush and he was there listening to Moses whine and bellyache and complain, and ask God to send someone else. And I don't want to do it. God was there, and he heard it. And he listened to it. And then later, when God threatened to destroy the people, Moses interceded for the people, and God listened to Moses. He heard Moses. Psalm 6, David says that he's crying out to God. He's weeping, and that God heard him. 1 Samuel 1 and 2, Hannah went to the tabernacle to pray, and she didn't even pray out loud. Her mouth moved, but in her grief, she didn't make a sound. And the priest thought she was drunk, and God heard everything she said in her heart. She didn't say anything out loud. God heard all of it. First Kings 8. Solomon prays at the temple dedication. God hears it. 2 Chronicles 20. Jehoshaphat prays about an army that's coming to attack him. He says, we don't know what to do. We're just looking to you. God hears his prayer. 2 Kings 19. Hezekiah prays about an army that's marching against Jerusalem. Jonah 2. Jonah's in the belly of the fish. Look it up later. God heard him in a fish, going to the bottom of the ocean. God heard it. He listened to that prayer. Daniel was in Babylon. God heard him. Nehemiah was in Persia. God heard him. God hears the prayers of his people. I think we take it for granted. I think sometimes we're tempted to think he's too busy. He doesn't want he to hear me anymore. i been talking too much and I'm probably annoying him sometimes people say that to me I feel like I'm annoying God he listens, he hears sometimes we take it for granted in that we have too low of a view of God and we think well of course he hears it's me and we do need to remember that he's holy and we're not and it's a great mercy that he listens to his people not obligated to do that. He's not beholden to listen to any of us, to anything that we have to say. But he loves his people and he listens to his people and he's gracious in that. So that's the character of God. Let's talk about the nature of sin. Why don't we pray? Sin is the problem. Number one, self-sufficiency is an issue. Self-sufficiency keeps us from praying to God. Let's look at the second Chronicles 16 passage I'll give you a minute to find that one and we'll talk about the the other ones 2nd Chronicles 16 what about Adam and Eve in the Genesis 3 when the serpent showed up and started talking to them they could have asked God for a second opinion right I mean they could have said hold on I know a guy and I want to get his take on this. I'd like to ask the Lord God what he thinks about your claims. We, we could fact check this. They didn't do that. They thought they could handle the situation and make a decision for themselves. What about Joshua? Joshua had a stellar career as a leader of God's people. But there's a story in the book of Joshua where the Gibeonites come and they lie to Joshua and he falls for it. Hook, line, and sinker. And the story comes full circle and it says, you know, the problem was he didn't ask the Lord for guidance. All he had to do was talk to God about it. But in that moment, he thought, I can adjudicate this issue. I can make the call here. I, I, I see what's happening. And he didn't talk to God about it. What about the story of Asa? 2 Chronicles 16. Asa's last years. I just want to start in verse 1. I'll read this quickly. In the 36th year of the reign of Asa, Basha king of Israel went up against Judah and built Ramah that he might permit no one to go out or come into Asa king of Judah. Then Asa took silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and he sent them to Ben-Hadad king of Syria who lived in Damascus, saying, There's a covenant between me and you as there was between my father and your father. Behold, I'm sending you silver and gold. Go, break your covenant your covenant with Basha, king of Israel, that he may withdraw from me. And Ben-Hadad listened to king Asa. He sent the commanders of his army against the city, cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abomem, and the store cities of Naphtali. And when Basha heard of it, he stopped building Ramah, and he let his work cease. Then King Asa took all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber, with which Bassa had been building, and with them he built Geba and Mizpah. So it sounds like it all worked out for Asa. At that time, Anani the seer came to Asa king of Judah and said to him, Because you relied on the king of Syria and did not rely on the Lord your God, the army of the king of Syria has escaped you. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans a huge army with very many chariots and horsemen? If you go back a few pages, there was a million-man army from Ethiopia that marched against Asa. And do you know what he did? He prayed. He asked God to help him. And you know what God did? He helped him. And now this little tiny army from Israel comes knocking on his doorstep, not a million people. And he looks at it and he thinks, ah, I don't want to bother God with this, I can handle this myself. Wasn't that a huge army? Yet yeah, because you relied on the Lord, He gave them into your hand for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward him. You've done foolishly in this. From now on, you'll have wars. You hope Asa will repent, but instead he gets angry with the seer and he put him in the stocks in the prison. For he was in a rage with him because of this. Asa inflicted cruelties upon some of the people at the same time. The acts of Asa from first to last are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. In the 39th year of his reign, Asa was diseased in his feet. His disease became severe, yet even in his disease he did not seek the Lord but he sought help from physicians. He prayed to God when the army was too big, a million people. But in other situations, he thought he could handle it. He thought he could be self-sufficient. So self-sufficiency keeps us from prayer. Secondly, laziness keeps us from praying. On the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus was praying. What was Peter, James and John doing? Napping. In Gethsemane, Jesus was praying. He had Peter, James and John with him and he asked them to stay awake and to pray and what were they doing? Sleeping. There's more we could say here on the nature of sin. The things you believe about yourself and the things that you believe about God to impact your prayer life or your prayer-less life. So sin is a problem. Let's talk about the work of Jesus. Jesus showed his disciples how to pray and he taught his disciples how to pray. He showed them how to do it and he taught them how to do it. So one of the fascinating things that you will find as you read through the gospel accounts is that regularly Jesus is praying at important times. At his baptism, he's praying. Before he feeds crowds of people, he prays and asks God to bless the food. When he's tempted, there's prayer involved, as you read that story in the Gospel of Luke. The night before he picked 12 disciples, do you know what he did the night before? He prayed. Prayed the night before, all night. In Gethsemane, the greatest crisis of his life, he's praying. Luke says, in the reference I gave you here in Luke 5, that Jesus regularly would withdraw to desolate places to pray. It's fascinating. Three-year ministry. That's not a lot of time. Three years. There's a lot he had to get done in three years. There's a lot that he had to pour into those disciples before he was going to be gone. And in the midst of all of that busyness in a three-year tight window... Jesus modeled for them the practice of withdrawing, not to get anything done or check anything off his to-do list, but to pray. Matthew 5, Jesus taught them to pray. When you pray, don't pray like the Gentiles. They think they'll be heard for their many words. You don't have to say a lot of words when you pray. When you pray, don't be like those, those Pharisees, they stand on the corner, and they do it loudly, and they want everyone to hear them, and they're putting on a show. You don't do it like that. When you pray, pray to God. He hears. Even when you're in secret, He hears you. He's your Father. Pray like this. Our Father, who's in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's how you pray. He taught his disciples how to pray, he showed them how to pray. Secondly, Jesus prayed in death. He prayed in death. John 17 is Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prayed the night before the crucifixion. It's the most beautiful prayer prayed in the Bible. It's holy, hallowed ground when you read it. As is Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane when he prays about the cup. And he prays about if there's any other way to let the cup pass, but if not, Your will, not my will. So he prayed in death. He prayed while he was on the cross. He prayed for the forgiveness of the men who were murdering him. He prayed a prayer right out of Psalm 22. Can you handle that? Jesus prayed a written prayer. He didn't make them all up. He just stole it right out of Psalm 22 and he prayed it. Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If you keep reading in Psalm 22, it's not a negative psalm. It's actually a hopeful psalm. But he prayed it right out of the Bible. His dying words were a prayer. As he's dying for the sins of his people to secure our salvation, in the final moments of his life, he prays, Father... Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's a prayer. The last thing that he said. He prayed in death. What about the Holy Spirit? Jesus said that he would send the Holy Spirit. I wish we could spend more time on this part. This is a whole series or a whole lesson unto itself. I just want you to know the Holy Spirit helps us in prayer. He helps believers when they don't know what to pray or how to pray. And you can look at this in Romans 8 as one of the most hope-filled passages in the whole New Testament, especially for people who are honest in saying, I don't know if I'm doing the whole prayer thing right. I don't know if I'm asking for the right things. I don't know if I'm saying it the right way. I don't know if I'm fumbling this whole, making a mess of all this. Paul acknowledges in Romans 8 that there are actually times in your life where all you can do is groan or sigh. And he says, one of the jobs of the Holy Spirit in those moments is to take your groan and your sigh and to pray for you. It's pretty good to have the Holy Spirit praying for you. I don't know if you understand how the Trinity works. I mean, I don't have a full grasp of it, but the Bible says that the Spirit knows the mind of God because the Spirit is fully and truly God. So when the Holy Spirit is interceding for you as a believer... God himself is praying for you. It's an amazing thought. The Spirit helps us when we don't know what to pray. So that's the why. Character of God, the reality of our sin, the work of Jesus, and what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Let's talk about the how. How do we do it? How do we go about this training? Number one, we should pray balanced prayers. Balanced prayers. You can see, I gave you the whole book of Psalms as a reference. So, homework tonight, chapter 1 to 150, work that in at some point. What you'll find when you read through there is that there's all kinds of different songs, all kinds of different ways that the psalmist talks to God all different sorts of things he asked for, all different kinds of attitudes that he approaches God. The uh, book of Psalms is a song book, but you understand that all a song is, is a sung prayer. That's what it is. When you come in this room and you sing songs, you're singing them to God, it's a form of prayer with music. That's all that the book of Psalms is, and that's what worship is when the people of God gather together and we sing together, is praying with music. And we put the prayer up on the screen for you. We don't ask you to make it up. We don't send you out here and say, okay, Mark's going to play, come up with something, make it good. We say, here's the prayer. This is what we're going to pray. We're going to pray it together. We're going to sing it together. And I'm saying to you that the book of Psalms has all kinds of different songs slash prayers. And when we gather together, we should sing all kinds of different songs. And I'm not talking about the year the songs were written, and I'm not talking about instrumentation. I'm talking about what the songs actually communicate. Jake Wood has done a good job of picking up some of the things that Jake Graves implemented as our worship leader, Jake Graves, when he started, took all of our songs and he put them into categories. And he said, okay, all these songs, they're about God and his character. That's the main thing the song's about. And all of these songs, they're about maybe us confessing our sin, uh, acknowledging our need for God. All of these songs, they're about Jesus and the work that Jesus does for his people, or the work that the Spirit of God does for his people. Then all these songs, they're all songs about how we're going to respond. We're going to trust him. We're going to serve him. We're going to follow him. And he said, you know, we should probably sing one of those each week. We probably just shouldn't come in here and sing a bunch of stuff about what we're going to do for God. We should probably come in here and sing a song about God. To remind ourselves who he is. And we should probably sing something that acknowledges how much we need him. And how sinful we are. And we should probably sing something that talks about the cross at some point in time. Be a good idea, wouldn't it? And then we should sing about our response to him. I got news for you. If you look at the most popular worship songs in the United States of America. Almost every last one of them is what we're going to do for God. And we sing some of them. But we're not going to sing every song about what we're going to do for God because our faith isn't built on what we're going to do for God. Our faith is built on who God is and an acknowledgement of our sin and the truth about what Christ has done to save us and our need for Him. And then we respond to Him. So there should be variety. There should be balance. I bet a lot of you Moving past songs and thinking about prayer. I bet a lot of you grew up and you were taught to pray with an acronym, ACTS. Any of you ever learned this growing up? I think I learned it for the first time in youth group when I was young. ACTS, A-C-T-S, a good Bible word. This is how you should pray. Start off with adoration. So you're going to talk to God about God. Acknowledging the truth about Him. Praising Him. Worshipping Him. Secondly, C, Confession. You're going to acknowledge your sin before God. You're going to confess. You're going to confess sin generally. And maybe you should confess sin specifically. Individual things that are burdening your conscience. So you confess your sin to God. T, thanksgiving. What can you be thankful for? What do you need to acknowledge that God has done for you? You thank him. S, big fancy theological word, supplication. That just fits the acronym, I'm sorry. Supplication means you're going to pray for things. Things in your life, things in your family's life, things in your church's life, things in your friend's life. You're going to intercede for other people and ask God to do things. That's a pretty good model for prayer. Focusing on God first, confessing your sin, thanking Him for certain things that He's done for you. And then asking him to do things. Now when I say that your prayers should be balanced, I'm not saying you need 25% of each of these. Set a timer on your phone. Okay, you got one minute for this one. Oh, time's up. Got to stop. Gotta, uh, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not even saying the whole aggregate of your prayers has to be exactly even. I'm just saying you should pray all of these All of these different ways when you talk to God. And, as much as I like this acronym, it's missing one letter. Does anybody know what letter is missing? It's really important if you've ever read the book of Psalms. Lament. You go read those 150 Psalms. Put them into buckets of categories. When you're done, the biggest bucket will be lament. Lament. It's the most common type of song slash prayer in the book of Psalms. Do you know what a lament is? It is an honest, passionate, communicating of your problem to God. It's laying your burdens on Him, honestly. And sometimes you read the book of Psalms and you're like, I don't think you're supposed to talk to God that way. I don't think you're supposed to pray about that. Guess what? You are supposed to pray about it. You're supposed to talk to him about those things. Are you supposed to be disrespectful? No. Are you supposed to question his character? No. Are you supposed to doubt his promises? Never. But you can talk to God honestly about your situation. And what I'm saying to you is your prayer life needs balance. It needs all of those things. And if you're out of balance... Something's wrong in the way that you think about God or the way that you relate to God. For example, what if when you look at those types of prayers, what if the only kind of prayer is supplication? All you do when you pray is you ask God for stuff. You think that might reveal a problem in your relationship with God? Probably. Probably reveals that you think he's Aladdin's genie in the lamp. I come to you in prayer, I tell you all the things I need, I expect you all to do it. What if you never ask God for things? You never ask Him for things. think that might reveal a problem in your relationship with Him and the way that you think about Him? It might reveal that you're completely self-sufficient. You don't think you need anything. It might reveal pride in your life. Or it might reveal the idea that you think God is distant and uninterested in the lives of His people and you don't want to bother Him by asking Him for anything. Maybe you get annoyed with people when they ask you for things and you project that idea on God and you think, eh, if I ask, He's going to get really annoyed. So maybe you don't ask. So you need balance there. What about if somebody never laments? And they only thank God. I'm just telling you that's a problem. Because that person is trying to pretend like everything is great. And I don't know about you and your life. But me and my life, everything's not always great. And I have a feeling from conversations I've had with some of y'all. That everything isn't always great in your life. That's what laments for. What are you going to do with that stuff that's not great? Well, the biblical answer is you should talk to God about it. You should trust his character. You should have faith in his promises. You should never be disrespectful, but you should talk to God about those things. You should tell him about those problems and those struggles. What if somebody only laments and they never worship or offer adoration? Problematic, right? Whining might be an issue for that person. Complaining, pity party. I mean, you you get the idea. There should be balance. And again, I'm not saying every single prayer, set a timer and move through, you've got to hit a quota. But I'm just saying in your prayer life, there should be balance in these things. Next, we should plan to pray and we should pray spontaneously. We should plan to pray and pray spontaneously. We're short on time, so I'll just tell you the, the Nehemiah references here. The book of Nehemiah opens with Nehemiah praying for days, doing nothing but prayer. He sets aside everything on his schedule. He clears the calendar, and all he does is he spends time in focused prayer. And then the rest of the book of Nehemiah, over and over and over and over again, every time you turn around, every chapter you flip through, Nehemiah's praying all the time. Little short prayers. He doesn't always spend days and days praying. Sometimes he does. He plans to do it. And then sometimes, at the spur of the moment, at the very last second, he just throws up a prayer. And he throws up all kinds of different prayers. He's a great model for prayer for us. Your prayer life should not only be multitasking time where you're doing something else and you're going to work prayer into it. Should not be the only time you pray. But you should talk to God consistently throughout the day. Both of those things should be true, planned and spontaneous. I think about Daniel. Do you think Daniel prayed when they chucked him into the lion's den? I'd say odds are yes. But you also know from Daniel 6 that it was his custom to pray three times a day. That's why they knew they could get him. He'll be there. He won't be doing anything else. He won't be doing any work. He'll just be praying. Planned time and spontaneous. Next, we should pray persistently. Persistently. Jesus told a parable about this in Luke 18. And Jesus says, the point is that you should pray and not lose heart. You should continue to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul says, you should pray without ceasing. You should just keep at it. Ephesians 6, Paul says, pray all the time with all prayer and all supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. All, 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 all the prayer. Do all the praying and just keep doing it. You've known people who have said something to you like, you know, I tried prayer and it didn't work. I prayed about somebody who was sick, they didn't get better. I prayed about a temptation in my life that God would take it away and he didn't take it away. I prayed about a situation where I needed help and it didn't come the way I wanted it to. It didn't work. You understand the point in persevering in prayer and being persistent in prayer is not that you wear God down. The purpose of prayer and the point of prayer is not to bend God's will towards ours, but to bend our wills toward His. There was a quote at the very beginning. I want to go back to it. Can you pull that quote up that I skipped at the beginning? Barbara Hughes Prayer is the power for growth and perseverance in our spiritual lives. Prayer bends our wills to God's will. Not the other way around. That's not the point. It's not to talk God into our way being better than His. But it's to align our wills with His. And it's to help us grow and to help us persevere. We pray persistently. Last, we should devote our best Time to prayer and we should use some sort of prayer list and I'm pulling this from Kent and Barbara Hughes Disciplines of a Godly Man, Disciplines of a Godly Woman I don't have a great Bible verse to give you on this uh, other than to say to you that uh, training requires intentionality no one accidentally trains no one accidentally gets into physical shape No one accidentally goes on a diet. You have to be intentional about it. You have to plan it. You have to know where you're headed. And that's the comparison that Paul makes in in writing to Timothy. Bodily training is of some value. And we understand how that works. Spiritual training is of greater value, both in this life and in the life to come. But it's going to require intentionality. Not your leftover time, but your best time. Not just... Maybe it'll happen one of these days, but some sort of list, some sort of system, some sort of approach that will keep you disciplined in prayer. Father, as your people, we're grateful. Grateful that you have spoken to us. Grateful that we can hear your word when we read the scriptures. Grateful that you hear us. What a thought that the God of the universe listens to our stammering and stuttering speech. God, forgive us when we're lazy. Forgive us when we're self-sufficient. Help us to look to Jesus, who lived a life of faithfulness and a life of prayer, who prayed for us, even in his death who taught us how to pray. Lord, thank you for your spirit. There are times in our lives where we do not know what to pray. We don't know what to say. We don't know how to say it. We're thankful that your spirit is at work in us to intercede for us. God, we pray that you would make us people of prayer, people committed to pray, people persistent in prayer, people who train for prayer, people who pray spontaneously, people who pray prayers straight out of the Bible. Lord, we pray that these things would be true of us and that as we pray, we would enjoy fellowship with you and relationship with you, that we would walk with you, that we would be your people and you would be our God, that we would not be guilty of godlessness, but that we would grow in godliness. Father, we're grateful for the time that we've spent together tonight. Uh, We pray for uh, our kids and our youth who are here tonight, and we pray that they would learn to pray. They would grow in these areas. Lord, we pray for the kids down the hall who are learning Bible verses. We pray that your word would speak to them and that they would hear your voice as they memorize the Scripture and meditate on the Scripture. Lord, we thank you. Uh, for your goodness to us, your faithfulness to us. Uh, And again, we pray that you would help us to grow in this area of prayer. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.